Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine. This week, we're going to talk to the historian Adam Tews about the COVID-19 economy. Now, Adam is a regular contributor to Prospect who's written widely about how the pandemic is overthrowing the old economic order threatening the global financial system and shattering all manner of assumptions about business as usual. These are dark times for many and strange times, I guess, for us all. As I was reminded in preparing for this conversation, despite being entirely well, I just received news that I was ordered to self-isolate because of a contact. So I want to ask Adam just how disruptive all this strangeness will be economically how long it will last and what it will do to economic thinking and policy and if there is any way to avoid or at least to ameliorate the disaster that seems to be unfolding. Adam, thank you for joining us from New York. Pleasure to be here. Now, you've studied economic crises uh, over many years and the crises you've studied are over many, many decades, so interwar years as much as the crisis of 2008. So if we adopt the long view that I'm sure comes naturally to you and put the public health aspect aside, just as an economic emergency, how does this one rank? It ranks very highly. Um, If you just look at the macroeconomic data, the data about GDP, about unemployment, Uh, and then their reflections in government budgets in terms of emergency expenditure necessitated by the crisis and tax revenue falling as a result of the contraction of economic activity. Um, This is, uh, you know, up there with the absolutely worst shocks that not just individual national economies, but the world economies ever suffered. Arguably, in fact, the single most outstanding feature of this crisis historically is that it affected virtually every economy in the world between February, the shutdown in China, and through to April, the height of the shutdowns globally. We think that 90 plus, closer to 95% of the world's economies entered a recession, and that's a more comprehensive recession than even in the 1930s. The other thing that really stands out about this is just how sudden it was. Um, 
And the other thing that's really fascinating about it is that who it hits, because I mean, classically business cycles run through bits of the economy that we think of as being globally interconnected. So they run through trade sectors. Once upon a time, that would have been agriculture, um, or it would have been industry, imports, exports, or it would have been finance, which is perhaps the most rapidly interconnected sector. And what's astonishing about the COVID crisis is that it hits the bits of the economy which normally don't fluctuate as much. So the service sector, retail, hands-on services, healthcare, education, home care, home help, all of that. And that's a different group of people. Above all, this is women. I mean, there was that phrase, I think most of us are glad that it passed, in which people were proposing she-session as a novel description of this crisis. Because, and what, it, what that term, that picks out is the fact that for the first time more women are losing jobs than men in this particular crisis. And once you widen the scope of the view, it's, it's even more dramatic. I mean, once you start looking at the emerging markets, India and so on, we've never seen anything like it. We've never <coughs> seen anything like it. And so it's, it's global, it's all pervasive by country, it's all pervasive by sector. I mean, you keep an eye, I know from your Twitter thread, on an awful lot of different market indicators. In the piece you wrote in the spring, just saying this is a big deal, um, uh, called Shockwaves, I think, um, uh, for the London Review of Books. You talk about like the oil price, you talk about currencies, which have changed quite a lot since. If there was one indicator that um, has kind of uh, alarmed you during this, whether it's the jobs market or something on interest rates or whatever, it, what, what would that be? Well, what, <laughs> I kind of want to evade your attempt to nail me down. Let me give you three. I mean, the freakiest one was the moment when oil prices went negative. Um, I mean, where people were literally paying each other to take oil off their hands. It was a freakish effect of futures markets where folks had contracted to take delivery of oil, which there wasn't any storage for, and there was more on their hands than they could cope with. That's a very unusual thing to have happen. It showed you, because oil is one of the common denominators of the global economy, you know, how 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 freakish things have become. The, the single indicator that worried the powers that be most, if you like, the people who run, quote unquote, the global economy, the central bankers, was what was happening in the sovereign debt markets, the UK Treasury, the US Treasury markets in March. And they're very tiny. I mean, we're talking fraction of 1% moves. Uh, if they're moving in the wrong direction, caused complete panic. I mean, it really did, and it's no exaggeration to say that in the second and third week of March, between the 9th and the 23rd, 24th of March, it really wasn't obvious that we were going to make it through this with an intact financial system. Not because banks were failing, but because there was such um, uh, turmoil um, in the, such destabilizing turmoil in the markets for, for government debt, which are the bedrock, believe it or not, of the global financial system. We tend to think of government debt as you know, in the hands of politicians and therefore insecure. Actually, because it's backed by taxes, it's the most solid sort of investment you can make. And those markets were topsy-turvy. But the thing, of course, which affects people and in some sense is the most staggering numbers that have come out of this are the unemployment numbers, or in the European case, because they're veiled through various types of furlough scheme, just the percentage of people who aren't working and the entire entanglement of that, which so many of us have felt in our family lives, the fact that children aren't going to school, there's no childcare. Um, and, and that has impacted literally billions of people. The ILO, the International Labour Organization, thinks 81% of the global workforce and the numbers here go into the billions, were under furlough or some various types of lockdown in April. 
1.3 billion young people were furloughed from education. And that will have, I mean, obviously it's hugely disruptive. It hasn't felt like a vacation to anyone, I don't think. And the impact of that going forward in terms of human capital is devastating. It's the largest single loss we've ever suffered collectively. So, I mean, it's certainly got, um, as you set it out there, like a real kind of, you can see it from Mars quality in a way that very few things affecting the world economy do. And yet, if we want to try and be sanguine, um, there are people who still think um, you can talk about maybe a V-shaped, you know, rapid recovery rather than a long drawn out trough of a U. Certainly Donald Trump thinks that and he thinks he's seen some evidence um, uh, in the second half of the year and so far as it's available of the job situation not being as bad as it might have looked in the spring. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, there's no reason. This is a completely unprecedented situation. I think the answer is that we don't really know what happens when you stop the world economy and furlough billions of people. And surely, because it was clearly temporary and caused by rather specific factors, there's every reason to think that much of the economy bounces back. A lot of the economy, in fact, continued on. Those of us who could work remotely did so. Um, the question really is how bad is the scarring going to be? How much dislocation is there going to be? And what is the future for sectors which just are rather difficult to conduct as businesses under COVID conditions? And we tend to kind of wave, us, you know, wave these aside. But the global tourism economy... I mean, you know, industry estimates, and of course they tend to boost the scale of the economy. They think something like 10% of global GDP depends, broadly speaking, on the travel sector. We're not talking about millions or tens of millions or a few billion here or there. We're talking about trillions of dollars in value added, which have basically just been sliced out. The Economist had quite a good, you know, one of its catchy uh, headlines recently when it referred to the 90% economy. And that seems to me about right, or some people refer to it as a, you know, a slightly warped square root sign. You go down, then you come back up quite sharply. That's the V part of the story. But the question is, do you bounce back? And for a full recovery, we don't just need to go back where we were. We, after all, need to make up for what we lost. So we would need to recover above where we were and then settle down to the track that we'd previously been on. And I don't think even the most optimistic folks see much evidence of that. I mean, there may be some revenge, so-called revenge consumption in China, where people's pent-up demands for Audis, you know, suddenly is unleashed uh, in the fall and, and, you know, German car sales to affluent Chinese come back. But we know even in China, which has seen the most comprehensive recovery, that all of the soft data, so-called, the sort of real-time data for movement in the big cities is way down on normal levels. So they've got their heavy industrial complex back, they've got their real estate sector back, um, they've got manufacturing back, then of course we have the whole trade wars cloud hanging over all of that. But what hasn't come back there any more than it has in the rest of the world is the you know, the stuff which makes living in cities so desirable, the chance to go out, to be able to go to restaurants, to go to the movies, to go shopping in person, all of that. All of that is, 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 has taken a huge hit. And those are, we're not talking about a small part of the economy. If that doesn't come back, the whole thing has suffered what by historic standards will be a historic recession. It will still rank um, alongside 2008 as one of the worst shocks that we've seen since World War II. Blimey. I mean, I just have one last go at doing the optimism bit. Um, <laughs> we had a piece recently by, I'm sure you'll know uh, him, um, the economic historian Barry Eichengreen, who um, was saying, well, you know, it's some 
he was sort of running a creative destruction argument, like that, um, you know, it was slightly provocatively making the case like, yes, it was right to put the furlough schemes in place, but it will also be right to withdraw them in the autumn because, um, you know, like otherwise you end up in a sort of zombie situation. And actually, as long as the demand comes back when we get a vaccine or whatever, if quite a lot of businesses have gone bust and there's a lot of free parts to reorganise things into a brave new economy. Could you believe that for one minute? That, that argument is being had all over the world right now. I mean, it's, you know, even in the countries which pioneered short-time working support, Germany is the lead example of this, there is a fierce debate going on on exactly those grounds. So there's a trade-off here, right, between supporting aggregate demand and basically welfare, tiding people over the life support that we were all talking about to keep people going, and on the one hand, which is crucial, and without which we would have suffered a kind of classic Keynesian-style implosion of aggregate demand, and a bunch of extra people would have lost their jobs because the purchasing power went away. And then there is the, as it were, Austrian competitive markets, creative destruction. That's the idea of Joseph Schumpeter, the great Austrian economist. Idea about, okay, well, if the world is different now, then you know, the sooner we start adjusting to that new world, the better, because there's no point in maintaining people and jobs that you know, won't exist. Um, and, you know, there's sort of a, a need for tough love, if you like, to, to see. And that, that's an incredibly difficult balance to strike. And broadly speaking, structural adjustment policies are painful and under any circumstances. And I speak as somebody, you know, my wife has a boutique travel business and she has her business is destroyed and not just her business, but everyone that she works with. And so she faces the very concrete question of what does she do next? Does she hang on till a vaccine restores her business? 12 months ago, would you have said that catering to elite travel was a, a business for the future? Of course you would have. But now what? So people like her and down the food chain of the global travel industry, all the way down to struggling you know, guides in um, Vietnam and Tanzania and so on, has to reconsider what they do next. That kind of shift is far easier if there is, in fact, a vibrant aggregate demand. So there are other opportunities for folks to go into. And that's not a given at this point. And... In many of the major advanced economies, there is now a very bitter political argument going on about whether the whether the stimulus will be sustained. If it isn't, if we combine structural change with, if not austerity, then at least a fall in government support, then that's a recipe for a social crisis. And that is apparently what we're headed towards in the United States right now. Oh dear. So, yes, you're determined to depress me and you're succeeding. Uh, one thing about your writing that's always terrific is the way that you can um, sort of soar and dive between, you know, these grabby kind of detailed financial things and what it means for the big picture when we come to political economy. Now, in the Shockwaves piece, which I mentioned, where you talk about these hubs, the three great hubs around which the world economy is organised nowadays of North America, Europe and then China, East Asia, and you talk about the specific vulnerabilities in each of them. From where you're sat, does it look like um, this whole episode, once it's played out, which may have started in China, do you think it's going to accelerate the move towards the end of the American century, as it's called? I think at this point, it's pretty hard to deny that that process is ongoing. And I wrote that piece in the spring, and we had not yet entered the hot phase of America's domestic crisis this summer, or the just truly staggering levels of uncertainty that we face now, where I think unless Joe Biden wins a truly stunning landslide victory, most people in America reckon with 
a disputed outcome to this election, which is delegitimizing. You know, you, you know, as I, you know, as a as a right thinking Remainer, I find the Brexit referendum outcome profoundly humiliating and delegitimizing. But at least, as it were, broadly speaking, it was accepted and we moved on. Though there was a huge amount of argument about it in the United States, it's just not obvious that if the Republicans lose, they will actually willingly depart from power. And and the mere fact that we're asking ourselves that question, and people very seriously are asking themselves that question, indicates, I think, quite how profound that crisis is. None of that had played out to quite the extent that it has since June and the huge upsurge in protests around Black Lives Matter. So, you know, if overshadowing that piece in the spring was the sense of you know, a profound crisis in the US, um, that has deepened. In fact, at that point, I was still rather impressed by the way in which the American national political system had rallied to fighting the crisis. I mean, the central banks, the Fed had done its job as it had done in 2008. And this time around, the Congress had mobilized around an absolutely gigantic stimulus bill as well. That ability to cooperate has disintegrated over the summer. So America now is sort of staggering into the fall when I think we should expect some improvement in the labour market, naturally, but a deteriorating situation for those who aren't able to get back into jobs. And the result has been a massive escalation of tension between China and the United States since then. America has enormously ramped up its pressure on, on China. Meanwhile, the Chinese recovery seems to be quite solid and what had looked like a potential sort of Chernobyl moment for Xi's regime in February has turned out from their point of view, at least how they see it, to be a triumph compared to everyone else. And I find those numbers pretty hard to argue with, even if you admit some you know, candy floss, some, some sugar coating of the Chinese data. There's no doubt, I think, that they contain the epidemic far better than anyone in the West, including Europe. And the European story is the real surprise. I find the Chinese-American one is, as it were, this was a tension that's been building up. The real, the real surprise has been the fact that the EU moved from what in April at the time of writing that piece looked like a predictable catastrophe into, in the July, a kind of, um, you know, very surprising compromise now. Is the package of July adequate? No, it's not big enough. Um, does it come quickly enough? No, it doesn't. And does it still leave the burden of most of the support for the crisis falling on national budgets? It does, and it doesn't deal with the legacy issues. It doesn't deal with the fact that Italy's debt is going to exceed 150% of GDP by next year, which changes the game. But the Europeans managed to turn a crisis into the opportunity to actually demonstrate the capacity for collective action, which, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and it has ultimately... It's not been there for years, has it, that Europe's actually been galvanised into doing something quite quickly. I mean, if you think the whole debt crisis, it was always lurching one step at a time. Refugee crisis, not economics, yep. but again, like, it hasn't felt functional like this for a long time. Although we had Soros in the magazine in an interview last time who said um, that he thinks it still won't be sorted, there's just too much debt and there's not enough pooling of debt, that there needed still to be this... No, it isn't sorted. No, he's absolutely right. It hasn't sorted. It hasn't been sorted. This isn't a conclusive answer. Um, but um, it's remarkable that out of what look, Jean-Claude Juncker coined this term, the poly crisis, which is the poly crisis is what you know Europe was suffering in 2015 because there was Ukraine, there was Greece, there was Syria, all at once, um, and this time round. And, and in the interim, of course, Macron, since 2017, has been pleading with Berlin for a joint, you know, a renewal of the old Franco-German axis, which doesn't answer Europe's problems, but it at least gives Europe a kind of powerful 
collectively motivated centre. And all the way through to April, all the way through to the end of April, it didn't look this year, it didn't look as though Merkel was going to you know, enter into a deal. There were all sorts of background talks between the German finance ministry and the Macron team, which we know quite a lot about now. Um, even folks like myself were involved in like, you know, talks between the French and the Germans trying to kind of establish a, a consensus position. And what that points to is that on the ground in Germany, there has been a very significant shift, a real learning effect. And in the end, I think that made a huge difference to Merkel being able to shift her position in May, because she sensed that the Spiegel reading classes, the Zeit reading classes, even some of the people who read the Frankfurter Allgemeine in Germany were increasingly disillusioned with the narrowly national perspective that Merkel was seen to be adopting. And that, I think, shifted her position in the course of May and the realisation that this was really a profound crisis and something that needed to be done. So it has been a, it's been a very surprising, very surprising and highly significant shift. I find it very interesting the, the EU language of the polycrisis compared to the good old British clusterfuck. But it's the same sort of idea, and if it's unlocked things, I guess that's... Yeah, yeah. I gather, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a rather obscure French existential philosopher, I gather, who coined this phrase that, that, that Juncker likes. But, um, but, I mean, what, what to me is characteristic of it is it doesn't have any guts, right? No one knows. I mean, it, it expresses the same uh, sense of like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is all happening at once, but does it rather more politely. The Chinese, typically, of course, have a rather more elaborate... If you, talk, if you read the writings of the Chinese security officials, they have, like, the six convergences of the five tensions, and, you know, they have a kind of anatomy of the way in which these pressures can impose themselves on the regime, which is slightly more articulated than either the Europeans or... All the Brits. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Just let's have a word on currencies, because I know that back in the spring, I think you were saying people were kind of sloshing into the dollar in the traditional way. It's the, the safe place to go in a crisis. But I think maybe it's not quite looking so much so at the moment. 
Mercifully, yeah, because when people move into the dollar like that across the entire world, it, it exerts huge pressure on the global economy because the dollar is the common denominator of trade and finance all over the world. So when it gets more expensive relative to national currencies, people who have straddled that gap and have thought, you know, what gee whiz, it would be cheaper to borrow in dollars if I'm doing my business in Thailand or Malaysia or Brazil, or people who on either side of a deal, say between Brazil and China, have decided to denominate the soybeans that they're buying and selling in terms of dollars, all of those people feel a squeeze because the dollar suddenly just got more expensive. Um, and that was actually the big panic in February and March, is this, just no one wanted any other currency. And in fact, everyone wanted cash dollars. They didn't even want US treasuries, which they normally go into. Mercifully, that has eased. And it is eased to the point now when people are beginning to ask other sorts of questions, which is, you know, is the dollar going over a cliff? Is this the end of dollar hegemony, so-called? Are we about to see some huge burst of inflation in dollars? Um, and if we did, what damage would this do to, say, the European and the Japanese economies, which are heavily export dependent? Um, and that really is the conversation right now. I, don't, I think all of that story is hugely over-dramatized. I think it's a misunderstanding to think that history repeats in the form of like repetitions of the 1930s currencies wars or something. But we are definitely seeing a shift. We are seeing a shift towards a much more multipolar global monetary and financial system, and one the logic of which we don't really quite understand at this point, because it's really... It's quite peculiar. I did a piece in The Guardian that just came out literally this morning trying to get to grips with this because currently we have four different regimes of monetary policy. We have the Americans who've decided that they aren't going to just hit 2% inflation. They're going to average the inflation that America experiences. So you can go well above 2 for several years if necessary to offset lowflation. We have the Europeans who are doing all sorts of weird stuff, subsidizing lending by banks. We have the Australians who followed the Japanese in targeting interest rates, so promising basically that interest rates on government debt won't go anywhere for a long period of time. And of all the central banks in the world, the People's Bank of China appears to be the most conservative right now. And we, we don't know how a system like that hangs together or functions. Um, it's quite possible that it could generate currency tensions and those could generate impacts on trade. Um, the hope, of course, is that everyone's in bias is inflationary and that therefore the central banks essentially go on doing what they've done since the spring, which is supporting generous, ample, gigantic fiscal action, which is what we need right now. Uh, to, okay, to well, if that's what we need, I mean, that, if that's what we need, and uh, I'm sure that's right, but as we get to the point where Rishi Sunak now pulling together his I think it will be his first proper budget, won't it? He's done an emergency statement or two, but that's coming up. He's been busy, hasn't he? <laughs> and the, the talk is all about tax rises, isn't it? Which uh, is, I mean, it's interesting in a couple of different ways. One is that, like, you know, after 10 years of a lopsided austerity, which is all about spending cuts and only very marginally about tax rises, you've got a Conservative government saying that it, it might have to be tax rises. But secondly... I wonder if they're listening to you when you say when when you say we still need like a period of expansion yet on the fiscal side. Uh, I mean, I th I think one has to be you know especially think coming to this from a correct progressive point of view, you have to balance two different considerations against each other. I mean, one and it's obviously a principal consideration in a country like the UK, which is marked by profound inequality, which has been going in the wrong direction in recent years, is the distributional aspect of it, which which would suggest that there is a real merit to raising taxation on the highest incomes and especially those with massive accumulations of wealth, if you can make it stick. 
Um, but there's another consideration, which is the macroeconomic balancing one. It's like, do we right now need less or more demand? Do we need the government to be running a deficit or a smaller deficit? It's not going to get into surplus. Um, and the answer there is quite straightforward, I think, that we need sustained demand. Um, and if that's not going to come from the private sector, one has to ask oneself, like, maybe consumption will rebound, but what are the chances under the present circumstances of seeing vigorous investment in Britain, given the COVID uncertainty and given the Brexit uncertainty? The case, as it were, for an overall reduction in the government deficit is, 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 not, is not strong. Um, this isn't the moment to do that. So if you are going to raise taxes, by all means do it, but offset that by generous spending and target that in a way which is either directed towards growth or towards cushioning the impact of this on the most vulnerable and the most precarious in British society, of which, of course, there are millions. And in Britain, as everywhere else, COVID found the weakest and it hurt them most. Um, and that's, that should be an absolute priority of, a, of any kind of egalitarian politics. And I, one gathers, because of the Tories' new interest in what used to be the Red Belt, that they may in fact be sort of sensitive to the circumstances of, of folks in, in, in precarious positions. But that's a, I, I don't know, I still find that a, a political calculation that I find it very difficult to place any real reliance on. <laughs> but, I mean, you do have an awful lot of debt, and of course, like even with a very long view, what you had is a level of debt to GDP, public debt, I mean, um, you know, of 40%-ish in lots of these countries before 2008. It then kind of doubled to 80-ish percent in a lot of countries. And we don't know what will be at when we're through with this, but like it could well be to add another 40 points or so in quite a lot of countries, I guess. If, if, if um, Does that worry you? I mean, Japan does muddle through with a very high level of debt, but there again... As I understand it, everyone in Japan who's saving in a pension is buying Japanese bonds, whereas in Britain or America, people can shop around, can't they? I, I don't. There's no doubt at all that it creates a you know a very complicated balancing act because it's very important then that interest rates remain relatively low because otherwise you're engaged in very large scale redistribution by way of the government debt burden that you have to pay interest. But of course, whether it's a burden or not is really a, is, an, is an open question. I think for me, the crucial thing with debt is to remove the guilt, remove the anxiety, remove the cliff edge scenarios, remove the Weimar's Zimbabwe analogies, take all of that off the table, look at the options open to us, right, and decide whether this is not in many ways the best way to handle this problem. So I have a radically pragmatic, what's called a functional approach to public finance. It goes all the way back to the greatly underrated contemporary of Keynes, Abba Lerner, who said that we should regard the government budget deficit with regard, with, with a focus on the things that we care about. And what we care about is real economic activity and the welfare and incomes of the population. And we can talk then about distributional issues. That's the only criterion. And so you worry about debt when it appears to be having a negative impact in some real sense, not until that point, or preemptively, as it were, that is the centre of your calculations. And at this stage, you know, it just is very difficult for me to see why this should be a concern. Things that would worry you would be if you saw an inflation spike, which would suggest that there's too much aggregate demand. There's absolutely zero evidence of that. Things that might worry you is if you saw a sustained loss of confidence on the part of investors foreign or domestic, who are in some sense selling out, you could decide to let them do it and take their losses and let the currency depreciate. You might not. That would be a pragmatic consideration. 
Um, but until that starts happening, you know, the priority has got to be to avoid mass unemployment and the long-term sustained scarring that happens from that. And the priority has got to be to support people on very low incomes who've been hit extremely hard by this and to allow families to cope because they haven't got any childcare. Those have got to be the priorities. Okay, a final question now, which is about really um, the sort of political economy of um, domestic policy programmes. I mean, a lot of us expected that 2008 and the financial bubble busting would be the end of, quotes, you know, the the, the neoliberal era. Um, But it's actually this crisis that has seen governments, irrespective of um, their political hue, um, getting weighed in much more directly in the micromanagement of the economy and in supporting workers in a conditional and very different way. Do you think this might be something that will stick um, in uh, a more activist bent of government policy once we're through and we've got a vaccine and COVID's out the window and forgotten? I'm increasingly persuaded that it does. I mean, I think neoliberalism was always complex, right? It, it, was, it, was, it was sort of Janus-faced. It had a face which was small state, minimal intervention. And on the other hand, it had a face that was, unless we're in emergency or unless the question is beating minors, in which case, you know, the power of the state is fully engaged. And so it was always a, you know, a sort of <coughs> rather hard to pin down as to what its fundamental logic was. I think one of its basic ideas was to depoliticize a lot of economic activity and to leave that up to the discretion of private decision-making or unconstrained technocratic decision-making of various types. So I'm kind of like on the fence also about what the significance of the shift is that you're talking about, because I think there is going to be an increasing awareness of the fact that really government intervention of various types is necessary, it's essential, it's just a functional necessity. There has got to be an increasing reflection on the fact that this isn't a one-off, it's been happening repeatedly. The question, of course, is whether that actually changes anything significant about the underlying politics. And that's what I think is much less easy to determine. In other words, we could lose the husk, we could lose the ideological confabulation, we could lose the window dressing of neoliberalism. But we are, after all, living in a society reshaped by it. So, you know, you have all of those interventions and you have folks like Dominic Cummings talking about economic sovereignty and industrial policy but of course, he's not Tony Benn. This is not the 1970s, because there isn't an organised labour movement which stands behind that and says, yes, and this is also about social transformation and a fundamental refashioning of the political order in Britain. That's all gone. So sure, it's no longer neoliberalism of the 1980s, 1990s variety, and it doesn't pay lip service to the Washington consensus. But you know. Th- the conditions on the ground, the objective effect of this is not that different from various types of intervention that we've seen in an ad hoc way since the 1990s. What is shared and what's gone is the talk, um, the neoliberal construction of what's happening. And that may be, that may be significant, it may be freeing. Um, so it's a, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a very difficult to read, I think, the overall balance of this. That, that there is a shift, I think it would be sort of, it would be almost like ahistorical at this point to deny the significance of the scale of the, the change. Um, but it depends a little bit, if you like, to reduce it to that. You could say it depends very much on your definition of what you actually took neoliberalism to have been. If you see it as a rearrangement of class, if you see it as a rearrangement of social power, then then we are not out the other side, right? This isn't some revolutionary break with, with, that, with, that, with, that, with that order. Um, 
we are we are whether we like it or not as it were children of that era and and it's very difficult to see that fundamentally shifting and to the extent that it's about consolidating Tory hegemony over working class voters across a large belt of what used to be Labour Party territory, you know, it's pretty difficult to read that as, you know, anything other than a sort of long belated triumph of a particular version of blue collar Toryism of the 1980s. So maybe it's a case of all that is not quite solid that's melting into air. But Adam, thank you very much indeed yeah. for that tour de raison. Um, soft whip throughout. and uh, thanks for joining us indeed on the Prospect interview you can read Adam's most recent essay for Prospect uh, which was on the history of The Economist magazine which is on our website and uh, if you enjoyed our podcast please do leave us a rating or a review Um, goodbye, stay safe and we'll see you next week Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.